the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. And then it was after that kind of sitting down and realizing that I had gained all the skills that I really needed to be able to do that. I helped grow a law firm from one to 140 employees. I helped create systems. I helped create budgets. I helped with the marketing. I went to court. I did all the things that I needed to do, and I had an MBA, an executive MBA on top of that. I had the skills. I just had to have the faith to kind of get out there and start it. Run your law firm the right way. This is... The Maximum Liar Podcast. Maximum Liar Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. Hey, Jimmy. How you doing, bud? Great. Did you have a good weekend, Tyson? I did. It was busy, but good. Uh, how about you? Yeah, we finally got some sun around here. It feels like we haven't seen the sun in a while. Yeah, it was it was kind of warm though. It wasn't wasn't really warm yet. We had, we didn't get to the warm level yet, but we did, we definitely got a little bit of break from that that bitter cold that we've been having. So it was kind of nice. So I enjoyed it. I'm excited about our guest today. Her name is Alicia Kinchlow. She's an attorney from Philadelphia. She got her law degree from Temple University, and she was a member of student government and a member of the trial advocacy program. She was a teaching assistant there as well. She then got her MBA from St. Joseph's University, and she has her own law firm in Philadelphia. She, Before she went to law school or before she worked at her current firm, she helped grow a mid-sized law firm from one employee to 140 employees. That's sort of mind-boggling. She has another attorney that works with her. Alicia, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So, Alicia, just tell us a little bit about your practice and, and how things operate with your firm. Sure. I started my practice almost four years ago this July, which I call my Independence Day. I actually started it July 5th. After working in a mid-sized disability firm my whole career, almost my whole life, from the age of 16 until 32, I decided to go out on my own to be able to kind of explore other areas of practice. So I had been mostly in a disability firm and still have a passion for that type of work, so I still do that work. But the majority of my practice, when I first started, was family law and transactional business law. And again, I just have a love of business, so that's why the business law was in there. As the practice continues to grow, I I see myself kind of niching down more, the focus becoming more on family law and other related areas of practice. Alicia, tell us a little bit about what you learned working for lawyers and working for a, a law firm that grew as much as it did while you were there. You know, what's interesting is that I felt like I learned a lot while I was there, but when I actually started my own practice, 
and I was able to kind of see it from a different perspective, I felt like I learned more. So it was how you're in law school and you're learning everything, and then you get to the applied part. So I was the very first employee of the, the law practice that I was in before, and I worked basically all different positions. And I think that's a skill or that's something that most business owners can really use is understanding how to do the work from the beginning to the end. So I started off as a file clerk. I did dictation back when dictation was really still a thing. We had to hook up to the machines and everything to be able in the foot pedal and actually type. So I did dictation. I did filing. And then I, I prepared files. I became the office manager. I managed other attorneys. So it really was an experience where I was able to learn how to do all parts of a law practice. And I was able to kind of see the growth of the law practice. I was fortunate enough to have an employer who really, I would say he was an entrepreneur first and a lawyer second. Very, very, very smart man. I didn't understand it a lot when I was there all the time, but he really looked at numbers. He had plans for everything. He really was talking about automation before people were really talking about automation. We had a case management system, but he grew to Salesforce within a few years. So he really was kind of ahead of the curve. And I think that was a really good thing for me to be able to see as a young lawyer, as someone who was growing up in the business itself, as a person and as a lawyer, and then as a business owner. So I I was very fortunate enough to see some of those things and then to also learn from some of the mistakes that can come from kind of growing really fast. Alicia, so Jim asked this question on the Facebook group the other day, so I'm going to ask it to you because I'm curious what your response is. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received with regards to running your law firm? The best piece of advice I've received is really talk to other people. And I, when I was getting ready to start my law practice, I kind of went to a gentleman who I kind of thought of as a mentor. He was actually the operations director at the time of the law firm that I was in. And I talked to him about, you know, what do you think I should know? And I spent a lot of time actually talking to a lot of different people about that. But one of the things he told me was that you really need to have an accountability team And it needs to be made up of people who are not just other lawyers. You need to have someone who can kind of, you need to have a group of people around you. So it should be someone like him who was an accountant and operations director, a layperson, so it can be a family member, but then also another lawyer who's done something similar to what you're doing but has grown, and maybe somebody where you are. So that way you have a lot of different perspectives, but you have people holding you accountable. And I think that was the best, one of the best pieces of advice. And the second thing, was actually talking, like just really sitting down talking to people who, like I said, have done it, asking them what they wish they knew and what they know now and trying to avoid some of the mistakes that they made. And that is something I even ask on my podcast now is tell me something you wish you knew then because I think that that's where we can really grow. We decided we want to listen to it. That's a place where we can really grow. Alicia, where were you right before you started your firm? And talk to us about your thought process as you made the decision to to go out on your own? So right before I started my practice, about a year before I I had my baby, who's now four, or will be, well, yeah, he's four. And I had complications with that pregnancy. So I have two older sons, very easy pregnancies. But this one threw me for a loop. And funny enough, he's a child that looks most like me. But I ended up going into the hospital and being on hospital bed rest for two months, where I was literally attached to a machine 24 hours a day, I could not leave my room unless I was going to get an x-ray, and I think only twice 
during my entire two months there was I allowed to go downstairs into like the little garden they had for 15 minutes, which felt like everything. But it was the hardest thing for me to be able to slow down. And it, it gave me an opportunity once I got past the first couple of weeks of denial that I wasn't going anywhere. It gave me an opportunity to kind of look at what my career path was. I had thought about starting on my own, but kind of started and stopped several times, mostly because I was comfortable. You know, I I married. We have a mortgage. Our kids were in private school at one point. We have student loans. You know, it's I was really comfortable, and I love the work that I did, and I love the people that I worked with. But when I was in that hospital. And I couldn't go anywhere. And I was forced to kind of really think about, you know, where I am and the idea that I was really at the highest point that I could go in the firm. I had a boss who wasn't making any one partners. You know, he made it clear that he wasn't actually going to have any partners ever at all. And for me, that meant that at, at 32, after 16 years somewhere, that I was at the height of the growth that I could go where I was. So I had to make a choice. So I think sitting in that room and honestly still working, I was I was holding <laughs> quarterly meetings during, you know, on a on a on a hospital bed with the laptop attached to me. I was still working, but I didn't feel the appreciation that I used to feel and I definitely didn't feel like it was worth it anymore. So it was definitely time for me to make a change. So after I kind of came home and when I went back to work, I sat down with my boss and basically told him I wanted his job. You know, he we had a good relationship. He asked me what I wanted. He asked me to create what I wanted. But if he still wasn't making me partner, there really was no growth for me at that point. And I, I literally remember sitting across from him at the table and saying, I want your job. And if you can't give it to me, then this is my notice. And I gave six months notice that I would be leaving. And, and that's kind of where my head was when I left. And then it was after that kind of sitting down and realizing that I had gained all the skills that I really needed to be able to do that. I helped grow a law firm from one to 140 employees. I helped create systems. I helped create budgets. I helped with the marketing. I went to court. I did all the things that I needed to do, and I had an MBA, an executive MBA on top of that. I had the skills. I just had to have the faith to kind of get out there and start it. So that's kind of where my head was when I launched in July of 2013 or 14. I kind of want to stay on this topic, Alicia, because I was going to ask you something else, but I want to kind of dive into this because I think this is a problem that a lot of people face on both sides of the coin where people want to be partner and they're not made partner or people are partner and they don't want to make people partner. So what do you think it is from his side? Why, why do you think he wasn't willing to really let go of the reins? He held things kind of close to the vest when it came to a lot of the finances, which made it a little bit hard for me to kind of do some of the things I need to do with a budget when you don't know what percentage of your, you know, your budget is percentage of the, the firm's growth and everything else. He was very close to the chest with certain things. I know that he, he had children. He had three boys like I did. And I know that at least at some point he planned on passing that on to them. So maybe it was a legacy thing. I'm not sure because right before he started his firm, he actually started it six months into me working for him. Before that, he worked for his father. So when I first started working for him, he worked for his father. And his father was a part of a partnership that seemed to work. And maybe there were some things that he saw there that he didn't like. I'm not sure. But I, I think that it really was never clear to me why that wasn't the case, except that he just liked to have the control over what was happening. So you you really were in it at the ground floor when that firm grew from one to over well over 100. and. I, I would just be, I know you talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, you learned some things that were good and some things from things you might have done differently. What were some things that you observed that you thought you might do differently as you started your own firm? I think one is, and definitely, you know, 
hindsight is twenty twenty. So some of the things that I really kind of thought that he wasn't doing correctly, I see it in a different light now being on my own. But I, I do think that there was a lot of growth that was really, really fast. You know, sometimes it was having different offices in different places. We became a national firm pretty quickly, um, which was, and that in itself wasn't a terrible thing. It actually was a good thing for us. But I think that some of the additional offices made us a little over leveraged. I think that some of the advertising. So again, he was an entrepreneur and and this is a good thing about it was that he kind of was ahead of some of the advertising things that people were doing. He was one of the first people in the area to do ads in like the yellow pages. Remember when people did that? He took out first, you know, a full page yellow page ad. And he had his face on there. And that was something that people just really weren't doing. I remember some of the backlash he got back from the community, um, from the, the bar, about doing that and how some people were upset that it, it, it wasn't fair to them and their advertising efforts. So I think that he was ahead of the game in some ways. I think that some types of advertising just didn't work out, but we were in it for a lot. And then it was some other things that kind of came with the area of practice. When we were doing, we did Social Security Disability. And there was a lot of oversight at different parts, you know, depending on who's in office. There was a lot of oversight and a lot of changes that came down that when you have a volume-based practice, but then you have a limit on fees, you know, you have to you have to be wary of the law of diminishing returns, right? At a certain point, you can only grow in a certain way without cutting your expenses or you're no longer profitable. So it was kind of trying to kind of keep track of all of those things. And, and that's kind of something that I look at is making sure that I'm measuring a lot of things that sometimes as attorneys we don't measure, we don't look at maybe how many hours we actually put into the case. Like we might want to say that we charge $300 an hour for something, but when we actually look at the work that we do, we're really only maybe earning $50 an hour. When we look at how much work is going into it for how much we're actually charging or billing. And I think that was some of the good things that we were able to really be analytical about a lot of the work that we were doing, but in some ways we didn't apply it all the time, if that makes sense. So I came from a... a volume-based firm whenever I, I left and started my own firm. And so there, there's certain challenges that come with that. Can you talk about a little bit of the challenges when it just comes to advertising, when it comes to the actual clients, when it comes to actually moving, you have to move those clients along so you can get paid on those. Can you talk about a little, little bit about those pain points? One of the pain points we had initially was that, okay, when you're doing volume-based and you're doing the same type of law, which is, which is the best part, is when you are actually only doing one area of practice, you can kind of make a template for everything and kind of implement it across the board. You know, people will call in at different points and want different things, but for the most part, you're able to kind of follow a really good template, and that's a really good thing to have. So I think we saw the need for a case management system early on, which was great. But then the thing was when you're adding a lot of volume to that case management system, the case management system in and of itself wasn't able to hold us. We were actually meeting with the case management system to help them develop ways that they would actually implement across the board for their other clientele because we couldn't use them. We were crashing the system or, again, I think that he was really kind of ahead of the curve on some things and he really wanted a lot more automation than the case management system was able to get give us. And so it was that was a pain point for us. Like we were able to kind of see some of the bottlenecks and that was a bottleneck was our case management system couldn't keep up with our volume. And then it was how do you transfer that? So that was one thing. Training was another issue. You know, at a certain point you have to – if you're bringing on people pretty quickly, you have to be able to train in a way that's more uniform. You, you No longer can you just bring someone in and kind of give them something and walk them through it once or twice and or sit with them. You know, we started having classes where we had people hired in groups 
you know, it was almost like a call center at, for some areas of the practice for the intake, you know, part. You know, it was – so those were some of the things that I think that we kind of we, – we were able to kind of realize where our bottlenecks were, and, and that was it. You know, those were some of the pain points, handling the calls that were coming in, making that as efficient as possible, not losing people on that end, you know, having the infrastructure. You have a lot of documents that are coming, a lot of evidence that's going out. What do you do with your, with your infrastructure to make sure that it can actually handle – a volume-based business. What do you do with turnover? My responsibility, in addition to managing the office, was really training the attorneys. How do I train my attorneys? How do I make sure that they understand the nuances of the statutes or the case law, whatever it may be? You know, how do I go with them or how do I send people with them to make sure they actually are in court and arguing the cases properly? So it was a lot of things there, I think, hiring the right people, reviews, Definitely infrastructure, definitely the case management system itself, and finding something that could hold the volume that was coming in. We're speaking today with Alicia Kinslow. She's a business, family, and disability lawyer out of Philadelphia, PA. Alicia, when you opened up your firm, I'm wondering how come you did something other than disability? Had you always wanted to do family? Sort of what was your thought process as you decided what to actually focus on? So... Being somewhere and doing only one area of law for 16 years, I was bored. You know, I was successful enough in in the practice I was in to try to get my boss to diversify the areas of practice. And I would start these other areas like the personal injury area, the workers' compensation area of law. And we had kind of started into the family law because we were getting a lot of referrals in. So when you have a volume-based business where you have tens of thousands of clients a year, and you have to refer out cases, you start to see, well, that's a profit center in and of itself. If we can keep some of these similar cases in-house, then, you know, we can maybe hedge some of these issues that we're facing with our main area of practice as the laws are changing and the rules are changing there, and maybe that's becoming a little less profitable. So I was able to kind of get interested enough to kind of set up these areas, but then I would have to go back to running my disability practice. And you know, I, I need to be challenged. I went back to business. I went to business school because I had gotten bored, you know, a couple of years after getting my law degree and managing the office. So when I left, I knew I still wanted to do disability law. You know, I enjoy that area of practice. I know all the judges. A lot of the people who worked for me as attorneys now work for Social Security, and I see them <laughs> when I go to the offices. I didn't want to lose that, and I didn't want to lose helping people in that way because that's important to me but I needed to be able to do something else. I've always known I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know exactly what type of lawyer I wanted to be, but I know that I wanted to do more. And so family law was interesting to me because it was different than what I had been doing. It's a little bit more formal, but not completely as formal as some other areas of civil practice. And it gives me an opportunity to feel like I'm doing something that makes a difference in people's lives still, like I did with disability. And then the business law aspect of it, of I started that and did that mostly because I'm just interested in business, like the work that I do. I miss being as part of the business as I was before in the other law practice, and I still get some type of excitement sitting down with an entrepreneur, small business owner, and talking about their plans for their future, helping them map that out, and doing what I can on the legal side. Now, as the firm grows, it's getting harder and harder for me to kind of spend my energy in that way and definitely to divide it across the board. So I'm kind of limiting some of the cases I take in certain areas. 
but that's kind of why I went into those two areas of law. Is really I just wanted to get an opportunity to do something different and see what I like to do. If it didn't work out, if I got into the family law and it was too much, it was too stressful or it was boring, I still had an opportunity because I worked for myself to be able to kind of change a little bit. But I'm, I'm enjoying it. All right, let's uh, change gears a little bit. Talk a little bit about your podcast and, and why you started the podcast. So the podcast is the Growth Goal Podcast. Again, another just thing I really enjoy doing. So as I said, I like to sit down with business owners and talk to them about growing their business. I also wanted to be able to do that in a different form where it may not be a client, and so I can be a little bit more free to talk about certain things. But I also did it out of kind of a necessity for myself. So I feel that with a lot of small businesses, and I don't think that this is just with regard to the legal practice, that it's harder for us to find information, or at least it used to be, to find information about how to grow your your, your small practice or your small law firm or your small business. There's a lot of information about if you think that you want to be the next multi-million dollar or billion dollar startup, how to do that, how to get angel funding, how to do these things. But if you're a small business and you're a solo and you just want to grow maybe to five attorneys or grow just a little bit bigger, there, were, there wasn't a lot of information about how to do that past the initial stuff. And I came across a book called The Boss Life by Paul Down, and I actually have it in my office right now, where he's actually a furniture maker outside of Philadelphia, which I realized later as I read the book. And he used to write for, I think, the New York Times. But I read his book, and he talked about a year of his business, and he was very transparent. I mean, he talks about in each chapter what the cash balance was at the beginning of the month and what it is at the end of the month, and his spreadsheets about how he figured out you know, what he needed to bring the business because he felt like his business was failing. And he actually wanted to chronicle what it looked like as you're trying to save your business or as your business is failing because same thing, there wasn't a lot of information out there for people to see that. So I got to the end of the book, which I still feel like is one of the best business books I've ever read in life. And he said, if you have information or you want information, contact me, email me. So I emailed him, not thinking he would email back, and he emailed right back. And he said, you know, you can come out and visit, you know, the office if you want to. And I said, okay, well, I'll do that. (laughs) And I brought a photographer with me, and I decided to record it. And I sat down with him and just had a very candid conversation toward his factory about what it meant to kind of run a business. And then he introduced me to another lawyer who is now my mentor here in Philadelphia, but it it gave me the idea to start a podcast where this type of information could be made available to anyone and not just in legal practice because I think there's a lot of transferability of a lot of things in business to other areas. And sometimes you need to see something that some other area of, of business is doing to kind of get a creative spin on how to do it for yours. But I really just did it because I wanted the information about how to grow my business, and I wanted people to tell me. And I'm hoping that other people get something of benefit from it when they listen to it. But I I get the joy of sitting down talking to people about growth. Alicia, kudos to you for taking the time to reach out to the author. Not many people would do that, much less go out and visit his factory and interview him on camera. I think that's just tremendous. You and I met through Mitch Jackson, one of our gurus who we talk about often on the show. And Mitch helps teach you and I and others, many others about social media. Talk a little bit about your social media presence, your your end game with social media. And, and I know you just went to New York to, to do something. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So social media is something that I'm still working on getting comfortable with, believe it or not. 
when I was in the other practice, you know, I had I had pretty strict rules about what people were allowed to do and not do when it came to social media. I think that it's changed a lot, and even in the last few years, so it's it's harder to kind of keep those things under wraps. But because I was a manager, I was so careful about everything that I did, and I said anywhere that I went that it was hard for me to be on social media at all. So it's really something I'm still kind of getting more and more comfortable with is opening myself up and understanding how to do that in a way that's professional, but also authentic. So for me, I'm always kind of working on my social media strategy when it comes to that. When I look at Facebook, I'm really kind of closed off on Facebook. Like I don't, uh, most of the people that follow me are people that I knew when I was in law school or their family, um, except for you guys. So you're kind of new, but for the most part, it's not open. When it comes to Instagram, I that took pulling out of me. It was actually one of my business partners in a business coaching group that I'm part of that kind of got me to start opening up more and kind of revealing more about myself and to be a little bit more transparent about it. But that's an uncomfortable thing for me to do as well. But the more that I work on it, it's really about talking to people about the areas that I practice, but also kind of showing them what it looks like to run a business. So it's it's a mix of, of, of doing that and being a little authentic and then also talking about being a mom and to a certain extent being a wife while doing these things. And I say to a certain extent being a wife because my husband is completely off all social media. So I have to kind of, you know, balance that, you know, with his privacy issues or, or requests for that. But when it comes to social media, the way that I'm looking at it now and more and more so being in a group with you and Ms. Jackson I'm really looking at how can it benefit my practice? How can it benefit myself as establishing myself as an authority and lending credibility to myself? So being new to family law, that is one way that you do it, right? You're able to, if you're going to be willing to go through the books and learn how to do everything and go to court and learn how to do things, if people are looking and saying that you've only been practicing family law for four years, why should I trust you? Well, look at what I've written. Look at the body of work that I've created. You know, listen to what I have to say about it. And now do you trust me? Because I think social media can afford you the platform to be able to establish yourself in that way, where before people only looked at how many years and maybe what school you went to to decide whether or not you were a good lawyer. Now you can listen to me talk about what matters to you and on a platform that you care about. And hopefully that convinces you, at least in the beginning, to to talk to me a little bit more about your case and maybe to hire me or maybe to, to invite me on your show and talk to me a little bit more about what it is that I do. So that's how I kind of look at social media now, even though, again, every day it's a struggle for me to reveal more and more about myself uh, or reveal sometimes anything about myself on, on a public platform. Alicia, you're, you're extremely talented. That's very clear from this conversation. I'm just curious. If you were not an attorney, what what would you do? What do you think you'd would, be doing with your life? I'd be teaching. Yeah, so <laughs> it's like I think when you find that thing that you feel like when you do it, you just feel so exhilarated. You 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 walk away and you're just like, that felt great. That's how I feel when I'm in front of people speaking. So whether it's in court and I'm having a great day in court, but often when I'm in front of people and I'm teaching them about whatever it is, if it's business, if it's family law, whatever it may be, if I'm just talking about what I feel it's like to be a mother of three kids or three boys and trying to balance all of this, when I'm speaking to people and teaching, that's when I feel the most, like that's my end, like that's my end game. My goal is to be a professor somewhere. If I can be an adjunct before then, that's fine. But when I think about when I retire, people ask, do you want to be a judge? No, I, I really want to teach. That's what I would be doing if I, probably still running businesses somewhere too, but I would be teaching. 
Alicia, you are a real rock star, and I'm really glad that we had you on the show. Where do you see yourself and the Kinchlow Law Firm three years from now? Three years from now? So three years from now, I see the firm probably focusing a little bit more on family law and estate planning. I see bringing on a couple of other attorneys to be able to do that. I see us with a more established presence in the Philadelphia area. Yeah, I, I see growth in the next three years. Like I'm really excited. I, I wake up every day excited about what the plan is and how the plan is coming about. So that's where I see the Kinshaw Law Firm in the next three years. All right, that's really awesome stuff, Alicia. So we are up against the time, so I'm going to wrap things up. Uh, before I do, though, I want to remind everyone to go to the Facebook group, get engaged there. There's a lot of great ideas, a lot of great questions that are being asked there and answered there. So make sure you hop on there. And then also go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There are several places you can get podcasts now. Please give us a five-star review. It really will help spread the word. So we really, really like helping people out and, and getting great guests on here. So please spread the word. So this will be the last episode that drops before the early bird special pricing for the Maximum Lawyer Conference in May. This one will drop the day before. So the early bird drops or ends on March 15th. We have a really great lineup. You can visit it at maxlawcon.maximumlawyer.com. We have uh, so many great speakers, John Fisher, Seth Price, Morris Lilienthal, Mitch Jackson, everybody on the list. Chelsea Lambert. It's just going to be a wonderful time. We're really excited about it. We're hoping that Alicia's coming. She's sort of on the fence and we're really hoping she can make it work, but it's going to be a blast. We're really looking forward to it. I've said this already, but I really do think we're going to sell out. We only have 110 spots and we're getting two or three signups every other day. So it's it, things are really moving. So for my hack of the week, when we were talking to our buddy, William Eady last week, I mentioned a podcast that I had listened to with Tim Ferriss where he interviewed the host of a website called Wait But Why. And the reason I like Wait But Why, which you can find at waitbutwhy.com, is he goes really in-depth into some complicated issues. And, and I've learned a ton just by reading his emails, the way that he sends them out. He sends his old archived emails out, and they're all really interesting. He spends a lot of time building out the content. He goes really deep into things, and I think it's made him really visible on search. So when people search a particular topic, if they stumble upon his website, it's really an interesting way to build the site. And when we were talking to William about, you know, going in depth on a particular topic, I think this website, waitbutwhy.com really shows you how to do it. All right, Alicia. So we always ask our guests to give one tip of the week. So do you have a tip for us? I do have a tip. I want to say one thing about the conference. So I'm only on the fence because I'm speaking in Vegas, on Monday through Wednesday, um, somewhere else, and my anniversary is that Wednesday. But I have already reserved my room, so if I can figure it out, I will be there. I'm ah, so excited about <laughs> what you guys are putting together. I, mean, I look at the list. I told my husband, like, I hope you're not too mad at me. I will be back for our anniversary. I really just want to go there because I'm excited about the guests that you have and what you're doing. And then there's a Phillies game on top of it. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm working it out. I'm absolutely working it out. But if your listeners are listening, you you guys have to get there. It's going to be great. My tip of the week is that you have to have resilience. If you are building a law practice, there are going to be many days, many nights where you are going to question everything. But you have to understand that you are made up of the stuff. If you were able to get through law school and you were able to pass the bar and you were brave enough, 
to be able to start out on your own, you are resilient enough to be able to to do it. I would tell you this. Make a plan. Get a good journal that is going to force you to kind of create a routine where you're going to have to look at your goals every day, where you're going to have to have a morning routine, where you're going to have to write down what you're grateful for, and then you're going to have to look at what your to-do list is. But making in that a routine where you're looking at those things every single day. I tell a lot of people that when you're trying to lose weight, you step on a scale and you think about if you think if you get on the scale in the morning, it helps you to make better decisions throughout the day. If you're kind of taking stock of where you are in your business every single day in the morning, you're going to make better decisions as you go. So I, I love the tips of the day. I know usually they're like a hack, but I would tell you that what's been working the most for me and kind of keeping me in line, especially when you're working the business, is kind of keeping an eye on your goals every single day and having a routine that makes you do that every single day. I love it. I got got me motivated already. And my tip uh, last week actually kind of would help with what you're talking about. Is, and it's the book, and I, I cannot remember the name of it, but uh, listen to last week's podcast and you'll you'll get the book title. However, the the whole idea is getting everything onto your calendar, and I've started doing that, and it's inc- it actually really is incredible because you are it's making you think about your goals and prioritizing and things like that. And I, I, I'm not doing away with my top five for the day. I'm still doing that, but it's just being incorporated into my calendar. So it's really awesome. I do have to correct one thing about what you said, okay? You said there's a Phillies game that night. There's a Cardinals game <laughs> that night, and we happen to be playing the Phillies, just so we're clear about that. All right, so my tip of the week is actually I've, I'm i ditching the note function on my phone, my Apple phone, and I'm going with OneNote. I had, I don't know, almost 300 notes on my phone, and I decided to then switch those over over the weekend. I, I, I categorized all of them. So uh, you, you've got different notebooks, and then you also have different sections under each notebook, and then you're under each section you have pages. So for people out there that are that are wanting to write a book, that is actually – it seems like a really good way of also writing a book. So that's another way. So my suggestion is – my tip of the week is one note. So Alicia, thanks so much for coming on. This is fantastic. We, we really enjoyed having you on. Jimmy, got anything else? Just, Alicia, where do we find your podcast, and, and where do we find you here on social? The podcast is called The Growth Goal, so you can search it on iTunes. You can also go to the website, thegrowthgoal.com, and, and see a lot of the past episodes and subscribe to the newsletter. And then on social, on Instagram and Twitter, it, there's my initials, A-A-K-E-S-Q. And you can also check out the firm more at com. and there's a blog there about family and business as well. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Thanks again for coming on. We appreciate it. Great, guys. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.